This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, good morning. It is 10.02 on a Sunday morning and you're listening to 3RRR, so that means it's radiotherapy time. My name is Dr Trainer Wheels and just as a disclaimer, I'm not actually a doctor, I'm a medical student. I think I said this last time, but I'll say it again anyway. I'm nearly half a doctor. So two years from now, I might need to rethink my name, maybe go from trainer wheels to, I don't know, tricycle? Four wheels? Something like that. Anyway, uh, we've got a great show for you this morning. Thanks for joining us. We've got a star-studded team in the room. We've got the ever-delightful Dr Capri, our GP and medical student educator extraordinaire, who's going to talk to us about thunderstorm asthma. We've got Panel Beater, as always, pressing the buttons, making sure we can be heard, playing music. And he's also going to talk to us about bicycle commuters and ride to work day. So I'm looking forward to that because I am a bicycle commuter myself. And we have special guest, Dr. Vincent Cornelis, who's a sexual health physician and PhD candidate. He's going to talk to us about sex. Mm. <laughs> and sexual health. On Sunday morning. <laughs> On a Sunday morning. I hope you're all having a nice, relaxing start to your Sunday morning. Put the kettle on and sit back and enjoy the show. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Good morning, everyone. Let's say hello. Dr Capri, how are you? Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I'm well. Looking forward to hearing all about what Vincent's got to say. Good. Yeah, me too. Mm. Me too. Panel beater, how you doing? Very well. Very well. I'm, um, I'm still, as some listeners will already know, I'm still bathing in Richmond's glory from last <gasps> week. So. Congratulations. I've been, I've been anaesthetised about all the bad news in the last, you know, <laughs> I normally just absorb all the bad news that's coming through the wires, but um, this week I've been a bit numb. You're in the yellow and black bubble. I am. Mm. Yeah, it's not yeah. a bad thing. Yeah, it's nice. not a bad thing. Enjoy it while you can. Yeah. And Vincent, our special guest, how are you? I'm very well. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for coming in. Not a problem. Capri, you've got a bit of catch up for us, is that right? Yes. So uh, earlier in the week, um, the health department launched this new alarm thunderstorm alarm warning system a bit like the one for floods and fires and um, it's to let people know who might be at risk of thunderstorm asthma uh, three days in advance just preparing them for the possibility now which sounds like a great idea I mean we're in that season at the moment between October and December is when the pollen counts are really high and there's a risk for um, people who are at risk who who are asthmatic and others of um, getting a, a acute episode of, of uh, asthma. So I thought, yeah, great system, but how do you know whether you should be listening to the warning when the bell rings? Um, because uh, last year, it all came about because last year there was, according to the media, the worst, the world's worst epidemic for thunderstorm asthma based on the scale and the severity last year. And nine people died in Victoria and thousands of others were um, were affected with their res- 
with a respiratory complaint. It was the most calls to the ambulance ever. Yes, and our in GP, and I thought it was kind of a made up thing. I'd never heard of it, but but <laughs> I know that's terrible, isn't it? But a lot of we were kind of in on it was something like our, you know Hollywood would have concocted. You know, our our um, clinics and emergency departments were you know full of people who couldn't you know gasping for breath, coughing and whatever and wheezing. So it's a real phenomenon. Whether it ever happens again or not uh, remains to be seen. But but obviously the government have decided it's worth spending some money on. So I thought it was it would be a good time to work out, well, who is actually at risk um, uh, and what do you do if you are and what do you do if you're caught out on the day? Mm. So uh, because the reality is last year a lot of people who didn't even know they were at risk were the ones who ended up with the acute um, symptoms. Because there was re- people who'd never had asthma before, wasn't Exactly, mm. exactly right. So obviously who's at risk? Well, if you know you have asthma... That's an easy one. But as you say, the people who don't know uh, they have asthma and who are they or at risk of asthma. So people who have hay fever Mm. obviously are in that same allergic type of risk group and particularly those, uh, well, in general, anyone who's hay fever, but particularly those who have coughing and wheezing during the the spring or the pollen season, they're more likely to to, uh, be at risk of this uh, type of uh, thunderstorm asthma. And then anyone really, uh, you know, so they're the people who obviously know they've got an allergic type response. Then there are a whole lot of other people who have symptoms but don't recognise them as asthma. They've never been diagnosed. They've never seen a health professional for it. Mm. So, for example, people who who have a nocturnal cough, a chronic nocturnal cough Mm. or cough and wheeze after exercise, or just have, you know, over the spring season get a bit of a scratchy throat, get a bit short of breath or wheezy. They're the kind of people who really need to go and see their doctors uh, to check out whether their symptoms are actually asthma. What about people with, say, siblings or parents or something with asthma? Does that make a difference? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about that atopic thing where there is a a familial predisposition Mm. or genetic predisposition for getting these kind of things. So eczema, asthma and hay fever fall into that group. Um, Having a family history is important, but it's obviously more important if you've actually had any symptoms to go along with Mm. that. So they're the kind of people that obviously as a preventative uh, measure should go and see Mm. their doctor and just discuss their symptoms and see whether they are predisposed. And if you are, then you you, you would then recognise um, that you're the kind of person that this alarm system is, is targeting. Hmm. So what happens uh, in the lead-up? You should obviously see your doctor. Make sure if you're an asthmatic, you've got an up-to-date asthma management plan so you know what you should... Reminding yourself what you should be doing if you do end up um, having an escalation of your symptoms. Uh, if you are one of these people who doesn't necessarily have asthma but has the predisposition... Um, your GP or pharmacist might recommend you get an Aventolin just so that you've got one with you on the occasion that, you know, something might, you might end up with symptoms. You don't actually need a script for Aventolin. You just get them at the pharmacist. So if you're one of the people that's, that, uh, has been labelled as being at risk by a health practitioner, then you should have Aventolin available to you. What happens if uh, the, the alarm bells ring? So for those people who are at risk, they should then batten down the hatches basically <laughs> uh they give you three days warning so if you you know know that on tuesday it's going to be a bad day for for those particular people they recommend staying indoors shutting your doors your windows and putting your air conditioner on um recirculate hmm. um and also making sure you've got access to your ventilant etc and if 
despite all of that precaution and and, uh, prevention, you end up with symptoms. Um, For those who are asthmatic, making sure, as I said, the asthma management plan is in place um, and following that. But for those who, who don't have an active management plan then knowing what to do and the and if you go to the asthma website or even the better health website um, on thunderstorm asthma it talks about the four steps of acute asthma management which um, people who are at risk should know about but also the people around them i think it's a really good opportunity for the community to um, uh, remind themselves of what they would do if they were uh, exposed to someone who actually was having an, any acute asthma to be able to help them manage that. And so there is the four steps of asthma first aid. Would you like me to go through those? Yeah, definitely. I, I need to know quick. them for myself. Yeah, I, I think, think it's really important that not only the people at risk uh, but the people around them know what to do. So basically the four steps are uh, you sit the person up, so that's step one. Step two is you get their reliever, uh, which is usually blue or grey, their little blue or grey canister, and hopefully they've got a spacer and you get them to have... um, you get them to have four inhalations of their puffer. Um, So it's one spray, four breaths, wait four minutes. If that hasn't seemed to relieve their symptoms another puff with four breaths and if that hasn't worked after four minutes then you call an ambulance so it's the four step four puffs four minutes and if after two lots of that it hasn't worked then it's the triple zero so um yeah so just sort of knowing what to do um and on the note of a spacer too, if you're someone who's never been diagnosed with asthma before but you reckon you might be at risk or someone's told you you might be at risk and you go and get a Ventolin, make sure you know how to use it because a lot of people don't use them properly and they don't work if you don't use them properly. Yeah, so when you go to the pharmacist and you ask for the for the Ventolin, you also ask for a demonstration and, and pharmacists are pretty good at doing that and making sure you know how to use your equipment. It's good that that advice um, on how to respond is getting out there because, you know, for those of us who have got friends and family in our lives who have got asthma, if you witness an attack, it's scary. scary. Um, and But you do get to kind of know the difference between an attack that's somewhat kind of... Under control. Under control mm. and attack that's losing the plot. Mm. Um, but if you're with friends or family and you've never seen an asthma attack, it's And often the person experiencing the acute asthma uh, is quite anxious Mm. and, um, you know, all the technique and all the the know-how of how to manage it often goes out the window. So having someone else sort of uh, with you who who can help you and sort of take charge when it gets to that severity is, is really important. And if you get to the stage where you're ringing triple zero, what do you say to them, Capri? Just that I've got someone here. Well, usually it will be someone else because often mm. if it's that severe, they can't actually speak. Mm. Um, that some, there's someone here who's having an asthma attack, um, and and until they and usually they respond pretty quickly mm. if they're not sort of um, overstretched. Attending to nine thousand people. <laughs> yeah, and the other important thing is whilst you're waiting for the ambulance, you just keep giving the Ventolin. You keep doing that four-step thing until they arrive. You can't overdose on Ventolin, so it's a very important thing to to know that the idea is to keep giving it until sort of um, higher sort of level of attention and uh, uh, care can uh, arrives. Mm. Excellent, mm. Capri. How do you sign up for this notification system? Do you know? 
You don't. I think it's a bit like, you know, it comes out over the community airwaves, you oh. know. It's, it's like the bushfire and flood thing. You don't have to sign up. You just have to know. And I guess that was the point of this exercise is it's great to hear the alarm, but if you don't know it applies to mm. you, then, you know, you just kind of annoy. It's a bit like the car alarms that go off often. You just ignore them. But, you know, if you found it's true, isn't it? <laughs> it's uh, not my but, car. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So well, if you haven't got a car, like your bike. So, <laughs> so yeah, I just thought it'd be, it's important for people to know, am I at risk and if you're not sure go and speak to your doctor and, and discuss it and find out whether it is you are the person who's meant to be taking taking note when this um, bell starts ringing. And if you're someone with known asthma, I know mm. for myself my asthma's been feeling a little bit worse since spring started. Yes. What should people with asthma be doing around this time of year, Capri? I think going back to their GP as well, uh, just making sure that they've got their uh, that their asthma management is optimised. So the best thing if you've got asthma and you've got persistent symptoms you need to have your preventer and taking that regularly a lot of people use their preventer as a reliever or not really using it regularly enough so it's not really being that useful as far as preventing your asthma so making sure your your treatment is up to scratch making sure you've got an asthma management plan that's been kind of revised because sometimes your needs alter and just being reminded on how to manage your asthma if it gets a bit out of control very good. Yeah. Thanks, Capri. No worries. Very good catch-up. Um, and I, I went to a grand round about thunderstorm asthma a few months ago, and I think they mentioned that November is the riskiest period in the past. That There have been thunderstorm asthma events in the past. Obviously, last year's was the worst, yes. but the ones in Melbourne have always happened in November. Yes. So just be acutely aware in November if yeah. you're at risk or someone you so, know is. Yeah. The pollen counts are up from October to December, yep. and that's when the warning's out. But, yeah, November is apparently the mm. worst time. Yep. Um, just for another very brief bit of catch-up, I just wanted to give a shout out to Professor Tillman Ruff and his yes. team at the International, is it campaign? I always get it mucked up. International campaign to abolish nuclear weapons who won the Nobel Peace Prize yesterday or the day before for their excellent work. They started in Melbourne, so I think we can take a bit of ownership of <laughs> that team. <laughs> Our, I can. Um, yeah, just congratulations to them. Really fabulous effort. They've been doing excellent work in with the UN and other bodies in um, getting rid of nuclear weapons worldwide. So good on them. Mm. Um, Dr. Vincent Cornelis is a Melbourne-based sexual health physician and PhD candidate who's passionate about providing comprehensive healthcare for people of diverse sexualities and genders. I got this off his website this morning, in case you were wondering. Um, his areas of expertise include HIV treatment and prevention and transgender health. And his PhD is looking into the prevention of HIV and gonorrhea. I'm actually not sure if that's correct. He can correct, correct me. Correct. Okay, good. Um, Vincent is very active on social media, I discovered this morning. Am I? Oh. Uh, reasonably. <laughs> And last year he coordinated a campaign against the Marriage Equality Survey, which tallied nearly 200 signatures from doctors all around the country. He also has an IMDb profile after appearing as himself in the 2011 documentary The Doctor's Wife, which was written and produced by his partner, Jonathan Duffy. I just don't know how you fit it all in. We were just talking about how young Vincent is. I don't know how he's done all that, but here he is. <laughs> that's, oh, that's quite an introduction. It is. Well, thanks. I try my best. Um, Dr. Vincent Connellys, thank you for joining us. Can thank you, you for having me. You're very welcome, very welcome. Can you tell us what made you decide to specialise in sexual health medicine? Well, sexual health is, I think it's a really wonderful area of medicine to work in. I'm, I, I feel really passionately that everyone's entitled to a great sex life. And I think that's really important for people's well-being. I think it's important for people's relationships, for their mental well-being. Um, and it, 
it's a very common issue that people have. People often have something in their life, whether that's um, a, a medical problem or a psychological um, difficulty or relationship problems that affects their sex life. And so it's an area that we can uh, really help people with. And <clears throat> little, um, on, as a, like a slight aside, but I think it's really important that people of all, as you mentioned, all sexualities, so whether they're heterosexual, bisexual, gay, same-sex attracted, um, and uh, all genders um, are all entitled to having a good sex life. So with all of those people, the, the needs might be slightly different, and so we need to have tailored approaches um, for yeah people's different issues. Yeah, well, we all do it, I suppose, don't we, most of us? Well, anyway. most of, not everyone. There are people who are asexual. They of don't course. tend to come and see me very often. Mm. Um, <laughs> but they, they're also out there. Disease, <laughs> <that way. laughs> all right. Um, can you tell us a bit about your PhD? Well, my PhD, I, I should probably, uh, my PhD, I started um, after, I should, I'll, I'll take a step back. So sure, about, sure. back in 2014, we um, started introducing a new HIV pre- prevention strategy called HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, um, which is taking one pill a day to prevent HIV, and it's extremely effective if it's done properly. And after that, we started seeing an increase in sexually transmitted infections. So we started seeing an increase in syphilis and gonorrhea. Um, and I guess it's kind of a logical uh, extension, you know, if you start preventing HIV very effectively, then people will feel more comfortable to have more sex with more people, and they may not feel as strongly that they need to use condoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's quite normal. I, I am still saying, you know, if you can use condoms, great, because um, prep doesn't prevent anything other than um, HIV. So we started seeing this rise in other STIs. So I started thinking, oh, I felt a little bit responsible for this myself. Oh wow! Um, so I started doing a PhD and trying to see, you know what's driving the increase in gonorrhea and what can we do to try and reduce it? Hmm. And what do you reckon? Is it an increase in risky sexual behaviour, like you said? Or Well, I don't like to use the word risky. Oh, sorry. Um, but it's, it's an increase in affection. And That's a much nicer way <laughs> yes. of putting it. People are having more <laughs> affectionate encounters with people uh, who they desire. Um, and so it probably is a reduction in use of condoms and it probably is an increase in partner number. And with gonorrhea, um, we think it's probably what's driving it is an increased rate in partner turnover. So if you're having uh, more sexual partners in a row, so in a quick succession, then that will really drive gonorrhea because gonorrhea often becomes symptomatic quite quickly. Um, and so I'm sorry, with all of this, I should qualify. Most of this is related to men who have sex with men because that's where PrEP was mainly targeted. Um, and if, as a guy, if you get gonorrhea of the penis, you get some pretty impressive discharge. So you usually know pretty quickly, usually within a couple of days. If you get it in your throat or up your bum, then, uh, you know, you often won't know. You won't have any symptoms. But if you're having sex with one or two people and one of you has got gonorrhea and passes it on to the other, then it's likely that one of you is going to get a discharge from the penis and all of you are going to then try and find treatment. Mm. But if you're having sex with lots of people in a row, then by the time one of you has symptoms you've probably already passed it on to a few people. So that's, we think, is probably partly what's driving it. The other thing that we're finding with some of the the data analysis and the mathematical modelling that we've done is that we suspect, and we're getting very close to proving this, that a lot of the gonorrhea transmission is probably driven by kissing. What? Mm. Um, so ruining everyone's I'm no sorry. Escape. There's no escape. But there is good news. <laughs> and we're doing a randomised controlled, based on that, we've started doing a randomised controlled trial seeing if we can use mouthwash to reduce throat gonorrhea. Ooh. So this is kind of the so aim of the game, I guess. We're trying to find new ways that we can prevent all of these um, bacterial sexually transmitted infections from spreading so that people can have an enjoyable sex life without having to come to the doctor every time with an STI. 
So just so I can get my share portfolio sorted, is it particular types of mouthwash? <laughs> so... Yeah, well, it's, a, it's, it it's be... Listerine. I don't know. I can't Ooh. say brand. Can I? You mean a high alcohol content uh, no, no, no. mouthwash? Sorry, I, I'm not saying any brand, but it's it's one without alcohol. In oh, it. without alcohol. Without yes. alcohol. Okay, right. Can I just uh, just a quick aside? Um, speaking of Listerine and. Um, and uh, are dentists trained at all to identify? Oh, Gonorrhea. that's a question. There's, uh, there's some really good dentists around. And um, I've had people sent in to me by dentists who find syphilis. Uh-huh. Um, oh. Gonorrhea is probably a little bit hard to spot because often it has nothing to see. Um, sometimes I've uh, seen people with, uh, I don't know, people having breakfast. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, go on, go on. We've already talked about peanuts. You shouldn't invite me for a breakfast show. It's <laughs> terrible. Uh, I have seen uh, people have quite a pussy sort of discharge oh. at the back of their throat. No, mm. no, I'm sorry. <laughs> so you can see that, but often you can't see that at all. So how do you pick it up? Do you just do a routine mouth swab? Do a, sw- a throat swab, mm. yeah. Okay, interesting. So does that? do you screen every... Like, obviously, people come to the clinic with one symptom. You just do the whole... Yeah, swab's everywhere. Swab everywhere. <laughs> If you've stuck something somewhere or you've used something during sex, if you're using your mouth for kissing or oral sex or rimming, it needs to be swabbed. Right. Because otherwise you might not know that there's anything there. Mm. Okay. It's very reasonable. Mm. Wow. Sorry, Uh, I think I've just silenced all (laughs) that. I was trying to do that. Where to go from there? How... Let's start with a generalisation. Generally speaking, mm. how how well equipped are people to t- turn up to their doctor and talk about this? Well, and, and, and that's that is a very good question. And I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about uh, what they're doing in their sex life and um, and what issues they might have that uh, is leading them to have a sex life that's not entirely satisfactory for them or is not doing it for them. Um, and it'd be great if we can get to a place where um, we, with I, I think with inc- ongoing training of the medical community partly, because I think it partly is related to the way that um, doctors introduce this topic into mm. consultations, mm. Um, that we can change that situation where, where people do feel comfortable to re- raise these issues with their doctor. I know in general practice, um, you know, sexual health histories are part of my day-to-day you know, I, if I've got a new patient, uh, I will usually do a sexual health history and obviously depending on the presenting problem. And even, I mean, heterosexuals find it really hard to talk about. So I imagine people um, from the LG, to, I always get that whole thing. Uh, LGBTIQ. Uh, you know, if, if they're not given the opportunity or feel comfortable, it's going to be even harder. It because, is. Yeah. It, it adds an extra barrier to, mm, um, to the whole consultation. And I think, look, I think it's very commendable that you do routinely do um, sexual health history. I think for a lot of doctors it's very difficult, partly because they see it as an awkward uh, conversation and partly because of time. Mm. So a lot of doctors are under a lot of time pressure and you can't rush a sexual history. You can't. It's 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 a sensitive topic for people, and you need to do it in a sensitive manner that uh, in a, and in a way that's not awkward. And so yeah, uh, yeah. But, but, been, but more, it needs to be done more. I think. I must admit, I, I always hope when I ask the initial questions, there's nothing. You know, forthcoming because then it does end up ballooning out the mm. uh, the whole. Um, as you say, you've got to take time, and it's a very sensitive. Yeah, but area. I think it's having said that, I think it's very worthwhile for doctors to just raise the issue, yes. and then that flags it for people, and they might not want to talk about it on that consultation, exactly. but they know they can go back to that doctor and raise the, any problems that they have. Yeah, that's that's what I think. I too. guess it really is only as awkward as the doctor makes it. Mm, that's right. Uh, uh, 
Would you say that's true or not? Uh, look, I think that's yeah. I think that's a fair statement. I, mean, I, I would hope that I don't make it awkward for people. Ideally, it shouldn't be any more awkward than any other part of the history taking process, really, because yes. it's all embarrassing, right? Have you got diarrhea? Have you, you know? Well, well, it's the same as asking about their alcohol history. If they haven't have a problem, if you have a problem with something, mm. it's going to be awkward. And if you just make it as part of the routine discussion, as you say, they might not talk about it this time but they'll come and they'll think well actually I think I will go back now I feel comfortable because it's been raised in a sort of yeah. and you can do it in a graduate way. graduated way like yeah. you can say you know are you single are you in a relationship mm. um, what's your partner's name yeah. or do you have any other sexual partners are your partners male or female or both mm. um, and I like are there any what's issues? your partner's name as, as a it's sneaky isn't it yeah, yeah. it's good it's clever mm, very good I'll use that I, oh, actually I have a question mm. you've worked in both the country and the city correct Vincent what would you are there differences in the sexual health needs for patients in a rural setting as opposed to in the city uh, no, <laughs> I think it's a short answer. I mean, everyone has sex. I must um, qualify that. I, when I was working in the country, I was a, I was a rural GP. Uh, I wasn't okay. a sexual health physician yet. Um, but but people did come and see me with sexual problems or sexual issues. And the, the you know people are people. The problems are the same everywhere. Um, you know, people have um, difficulties maintaining a satisfactory sex life in long term relationships. People have fears about performance. So men might have fears about uh, maintaining erections or achieving satisfactory erections. Um, or people are just in generally you know, can get worried about being able to satisfy their partner um, adequately. They're all the same issues. Yeah. Hmm. Now, just going back to the prep. Yep. Um, tell us some statistics. How what kind of difference has it made? It looks it's very early in uh, Australia. So we started the uh, PrepX trial um, in twenty. Gosh, what are we now? Twenty seventeen. So yeah. we started in twenty sixteen. Oh gosh, it all blends into one. Um, so PrepX, um, we started. It started from the Alfred Hospital, and um, currently we've got about. Almost three and a half thousand guys, mainly guys, um, on prep, taking one pill a day to prevent HIV. With the aim, the aim of the trial is to see if we can reduce the um, number of new cases, so the number of transmissions in Victoria as a whole, as a whole state. Um, and that, I, you know, I can't really give you any results on yet because it's a bit too early to sure. see. Because there's there's always a lag in notification data. Um, and, you know, we have seen a dip in the month-to-month notifications, but we need to see whether that um, will be sustained over the next, um, you know, next six months or if it's just a glitch in the in, in the notification trend. And what are the stats on HIV in Australia? Well, we've got about... Well, it's interesting. So since about 1994... Um, We've had uh, increasing um, notifications sort of year on year, slowly increasing every year. Um, and we'd be sitting at about mm. 1,000 new notifications a year in Australia. Right. Um, and then hopefully, as I said, hopefully with this, we can make a big dent in that. So the aim is to try and reduce um, new transmissions by at least 30%. Mm. Do you know what's caused the increase in notifications since the 90s? Um, well, I guess there's more people, mm. for starters. So if you've got more people, you're going to have more people having sex. Makes and, sense. Um, more um, notifications. Um, and the, the whole, um, obviously, back in the 80s, we had the, the terrible things like um, the Grim Reaper ads. And, and while they were very effective at getting people to stop having sex. Uh, which, <laughs> which is probably not the outcome you were after, No, exactly. I it's not the, the, I would not advocate for anything that stops people having sex. Mm. Um, and as such, um, look, and... 
it did that government response did um, limit the amount of uh, HIV cases in Australia, particularly if you compare them uh, globally to say the United States. Um, our incidence rate was much lower, and probably partly because of things like the Grim Reaper ad. But mm. it, unfortunately, the Grim Reaper ad also did a lot of damage to people's psychological well-being, mm. particularly in the in the gay community. People felt um, victimised, and mm. they felt that they were being held responsible for um, <laughs> HIV transmission. Um, so, but that probably did put a dent on it. And then, obviously, since in 1994, we started getting some really highly active uh, HIV treatments. And all of a sudden, rather than people dying, people were living with HIV. Um, and they were. Um, since then, the treatments have improved and improved. And now we've got fantastic HIV treatment that has minimal side effects, if any. So most people who now get diagnosed with HIV can start on treatment that they can tolerate really well. And um, usually, it's one pill once a day with no side effects. Um, so the whole perception around HIV has changed as a result, understandably so. So people back in the 80s had a real strong fear of HIV and I think now um, it's fair to say that most people don't have that strong a fear around HIV. So people are less bothered by it and um, as a result hopefully having better sex lives and having more sex. Um, so obviously all of that might be contributing to rises in STIs, um, bacterial STIs as well as HIV. So I guess, I guess um, uh, the... Um, the most sexually active age of people back when those Grim Reaper ads were taking place, um, the generation now would only remember these from the history books, these ads yeah, as well, right? right? So there's another type, of, another type of education um, required. Yeah, and I think, you know, I see a lot of people, um, young people who have just been through school and um, it's very obvious that their sexual health education has been minimal. Um, so I think that's really an area that we as a country need to work on. Mm. I don't think we, it's something that we can leave to parents. Um, I think that is something that needs to be driven by schools. Because not, not everyone like who is a parent is also an expert on sexual health. Like, I think that's a kind of a bizarre <laughs> assumption that, like, that parents should be able to teach their kids about sexual health because they might not be having great sex themselves. And, you know, if you're obviously most parents are heterosexual and if your kid is um, not heterosexual, how are you going to tell them how to have a good anal sex, for example? What are you going to tell them? I don't know. You, <laughs> in, in, yeah, I'm not never that. done it. I mean, you can look it up on Wikipedia, perhaps, but <laughs> I, I, probably I, not the best idea to Google <laughs> anal sex if you're not interested in. I, no, you, you might not. I don't think the Wikipedia page is the first thing that comes up. <laughs> I, real, I realise in a couple of um, your responses to different things that we've touched on, um, you've um, made um, a passing reference or a, a correlation between the quality type um, uh, vocabulary around sex, you know, good sex and so on, um, and healthy sex. Now, these are synonymous or not? In, well, in my mind, they are. I mean, obviously, if you're having um, health issues that affect, affect your sex life, then... Um it, it, it will affect the quality of your sex, your sex life. I'm not saying that people with medical conditions can't have great sex lives. Um, but there are certain um, problems, for example, if you're having uh, difficulties uh, achieving an erection as a guy, that if you're not having... A, if you haven't had an opportunity to address that and work out how you're going to work around that in your sex life, so either uh, find a way to overcome the difficulties you're having or find a way to have sex that doesn't require you to have an erection necessarily, then obviously that's going to affect the quality of, a, of your sex life. So I think they, they are synonymous in a way. Um, then aren't you starting to go into territory that is then making another distinction, and that's between disease um, and sex and... Performality, uh, um, uh, capacity for sex. 
yes. Or would you like to expand on your well, question? No, is, is it a distinction worth making? I'm trying to get to the the nub of the um, relationship between quality and health. Yeah, uh, so I guess with health, I don't really frame it in disease usually. It's, um, for me, health is a is a, a quite a broad concept and sexual health mm-hmm. is as well. I mean, it's, a, it's an intermingling of um, social health as well as psychological health and, and physical health. So it's healthy relationships, healthy psychological well-being and um, uh, having a, a, a healthy body as in to the point where you're happy with the, the way your body is and that you've mm. found a way to have sex with your body the way it is. It sounds like, though, as a clinician, you must have two hats on because, you know, if someone comes in with a penile discharge, you've obviously got something pretty concrete to, to have to manage and mm. then you've got the other side of things. So do you do that at the same time uh, or do you, you know... Yeah, how does your cons- consultation unfold? You, you're obviously very clinical in one sense that you've got a, a diagnosis and a management and follow-up. And then what about the other side of it? Do you do that all at once? Well, it's it's kind of, you know, as you know from uh, general practice, these things, you can't do everything at the same time, no. unfortunately. And, um, but if, certainly if someone comes in with a penile discharge, that's a great opportunity to engage that person and just ask a few sort of questions about, you know, what's going on for them. And then getting them back, and you know, if any issues have, if you have uncovered any issues, or if um, they, if it's triggered something in their mind, going, actually, I think there's something else I need to talk about, then they can come back and start to address that. But so certainly, while I've got a needle in their backside for treating yeah. their gonorrhea, it's probably not the best time to. So you're really a sexual counsellor as well, in some ways. Yeah, you, you have to, to be. Yeah. yeah, but I think most doctors are counsellors in a way. Yeah, mm, yeah um, some more just, I tend to ones, yeah. talk more about sex. Than yeah. Problem is, there's no training. You haven't actually had any training in that. You sort of just get the skills as you go along, and yeah, sort of yeah. There are. I mean, there are some resources for doctors who wish to train in um, sexual health counselling. Mm. Um, the University of Sydney runs a master's degree in um, sexual health, mm. um, and there's some other um, university-based courses. But yeah, but I guess most people just pick it up. You, you spend long enough in working with people and, and dealing with their sex lives and their and the mental health uh, issues, and you know, you, you pick these things up as mm. you go. That's true. Mm-hmm. It just occurs to me that, um, you know, coming back to the, the social norms aspect of this and what make it, may make it easier or more possible for people to turn up to their doctor and have these conversations, we, in the same way as we identify on Australian television the absence of certain members of our community, you know, there's an absence of race in Australian yes. television. There's also an absence of people, you know, in soaps or movies or whatever, there's an absence of people who are dealing with any of the issues that you've been talking to us mm. about, aren't there? Oh, it'd be great to have more media representation of people who are having difficulties in their sexual relationships. That'd be fantastic. How would you characterise the quality of just generic media communication about these things? Then? Um, I think it does often get framed in a medical uh, medical way, mm. um, which possibly isn't that helpful, I think, because I don't think people sort of engage with that terribly well if we frame everything medically. I think that's um, true of sex ed in general too. There's a focus on how to perform safe sex and not get pregnant if you don't want to get yeah, pregnant very, or very biological, how to not get an STI, like, but not much about the emotional side of it, which is yeah. surely the more important well, we, aspect you know, we of need to have, Exactly, in the schools. And I'm, I have spoken to teachers about this and there, there is some work going into this, but we need to obviously talk about consent, mm. Um, mm. communication. Um, and those are really... Consent and communication are probably the, the big two building blocks that we need to uh, build sexual health education on. Because mm. um, if you can't get that right then all the other things don't really work. If you can't uh, get consent and communication right, then how are you going to use a condom during sex? 
if you can't insist on the other person, well, not insist, but if you can't assert mm. your wish, do you have the a conversation wrong? about that? Mm. Mm. Vincent, I, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, but because of your particular interest and your area in sexual health, a lot of your patients would be members of the LGBTI community. And that's correct. Is that true? And because of your special interest in their healthcare and your commitment to comprehensive healthcare for members of the community that are gender or sexuality diverse. Do you end up treating members of the LGBTI community for non-sexual problems? Yeah, I do. I do a lot of um, transgender medicine as well. So helping people to um, uh, on their sort of on their gender affirmation journey. Um, so um, prescribing hormone therapy, um, facilitating access to surgery. Um, obviously, I don't do surgery, but you know, uh, organising for them to see appropriate surgeons. Um, and with that come a lot of uh, mental health assessments as well. And Sorry, and that's not to say that um, transgender people necessarily have mental health It's a legal problems, requirement though, isn't it? No, it's it's a changing scene okay. at the moment, um, what the sort of mental health requirements are uh, for gender affirmation, but that's, a, that's probably a whole Another other topic. topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Um, should we wrap it up there? Any other burning comments no i've learned a lot thank you thank you so much vincent that was fascinating and now panel beater you've got something to say about bikes well yeah so a a couple of things happened all at once for me um i was reminded that uh it's uh ride to work day coming up um on the 18th of october so bicycle victoria are doing their promotions around that and at about the same time i um um, read a piece of research that came in from the BMJ and it was around a massive uh, study uh, on on commuter cycling and the health benefits thereof. And I'll talk about those in a minute. The third thing that happened pretty much around the same time is I crashed my bike commuting. Yeah. <laughs> Is that why you've yeah, got that thing on your wrist? Yeah, much so I'm, I'm, I'm much better than I was. It wasn't um, a tram track, was it? it, it, it yeah, it turned into a tram <laughs> track. Yeah, that, <laughs> or a train wreck. <laughs> or a train wreck. <laughs> that was after the airborne bit. Yeah, oh, yeah. oh, no. Um, um, so all of those things were happening. So I'm still very enthusiastic about riding my bike and I'm looking forward to getting back perhaps this week. Um, but so those those things were happening. So it's, it's, it's part plug for the um, ride to work day and... Uh, but part uh, just communication of these results. So this this survey, um, survey this this piece of research, um, surveys on our mind all the time <laughs> mm. at the moment. Um, this um, piece of research was conducted over a five year period. It was conducted with a quarter of a million participants. Well, you know, so as far as medical, re- well, any research, but certainly epidemiology numbers. and public health and so on. As far as that goes, that's that's massive. Um, and although it was its interest was motivated by commuter cycling, um, it um, went uh, those those two hundred and fifty thousand participants. They deliberately made sure that there was a cross section of different ways that people went to work. Obviously, so they could do the compare car- comparison type um, aspect of things. Um, so you know, no surprises to find in one sense that. Um, uh, the research confirmed the health benefits of riding, right? It, it's almost a mantra. People move more, eat less. Mm. There you go. You're on your way to, to a reasonable, um, reasonably healthy life. Um, but it um, was then able to uncover, uh, to a certain extent, motivations for people to ride or not to ride, not to commute. Um, but I think I'll just jump straight to some of the findings, which was so striking. So we knew that we, we could reasonably assume that, of course, there's going to be a health benefit. But the health benefit um, demarcation between those who commuted by cycling and those who chose either a mixed mm. mode or not was dramatic. So 
I'll give you a little, a few numbers on that. Um, so, I'll, I'll just actually. So they set it up with the with the cross profile of uh, participants. Um, five categories: non-active, um, so that's just car and public transport completely. Uh, walking, um, cycling, including some who cycled and walked. Uh, mixed mode walking, that's um, walking plus non-active, and mixed mode cycling, that's cycling plus non-active. They followed them around for five years, and then they were interested in heart disease, cancer, and death, and uh, you know, ultimate mortality. Um, they adjusted for health influences, including sex, age, and uh, um, deprivation, ethnicity, smoking, body mass index, and other types of physical activity. I'm sitting down, so sitting down's on our on our radar at the moment. Sitting's the new smoking. Sitting's the new smoking, mm. um, and diet. So, you know, basically painting a picture of the comprehensive nature of the of the research, and therefore the results. So they found. That cycling was associated with. Do you want to? Do you want to? Guys, have want to guess? I've built it up. What do you reckon as a percentage um, was the lower overall risk of dying compared with commuting by car? This is after adjusting. So, with so all, all of those factors death. taken into account, um, what was the difference? The low, you know, the risk difference. The percentage. Just pick a number. I'm going to go with sixty. Oh, okay. What? I'm going to say ten. <laughs> ten. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was forty one percent. Holy moly! So almost yeah, well forty one percent sort of says it all. So mm. you had a forty one percent lower risk of dying overall compared to commuting by car or transport. Mm. Did it matter how far you commuted? I mean, I know that's probably a silly question. If you're commuting, distance was one of the. Was did I just mention distance? Ah. Smarty pants. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's all right. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not sure if distance was in there, but that gives me a reason to go back and check it. Some oh, more. Let's get a new bike. <laughs> um, so that was a 41% overall. Um, it was 52% lower risk of dying from heart disease. Whoa. Right. Yeah. 52. Um, Makes sense. And 40% um, from dying of cancer. Mm. And really? They, they obviously took into account dying from car accidents. That's what I was going to yeah. ask. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the benefit outweighs yeah. the risk? No, that was um, that was taken into account. Yeah. Mm. And, and also um, it obviously included crashing your bike and maybe mm. not making it mm. home either. Mm. Um so, forty-six um, percent lower uh, risk of developing heart disease, and forty-five percent lower risk of developing cancer at all. Wow! The cancer That's one surprises pretty... me. Actually, that's really significant. Well, I guess we then. I mean, obviously, I've only got the um, the high level results here. I guess in the detail, we would find out about those things around mm. diet. So, are yes. uh, people who are right. more likely more to likely. commute to work less, less likely, likely to, to be smoke, smoke yes. you know, or and, and drink alcohol and all the other yeah, exactly yeah. So, factors. So, all of yeah. those things start to add. Yeah. Um, but the, perhaps um, by way of contrast, it, walking didn't seem to do as much really? as we may have thought it might. Um, so walking to work was not associated with a lower risk of dying from all causes. Walkers did, however, have a 27% lower risk of heart disease and 30, 36% of dying overall. It doesn't oh, talk about so mental health. It's improvement. No. Hmm. Okay. That'd what, be a good what's one the do, mental health it? angle? Oh, just uh, getting out and walking and fresh air i mean it is good for mental health uh so or any form of exercise but you know we do encourage people who've got mental health issues to you know go out and walk every day it's sort of yeah sure clear your head i know one of my motivations for cycling is is related to the head as much Mm. as it is to the body Mm. there's a different mentality for me when i get to work if i've ridden compared to if i've 
um, caught public transport. Yeah. I agree. On public transport, I end up just sitting on my phone the whole time, a lot of the time. And if I'm in the car, it's sort of stressful because it's the traffic and the parking and the blah, blah. Yeah. And the bike, it's a bit more... I guess we don't want to relaxing. put people off walking, though. Uh, I think no, <laughs> that, that's no, your no. only form of exercise. It's still a, a valid... Um, better than nothing. Better than nothing, exactly, mm. and for all the other reasons too. But it's interesting with um, osteoporosis prevention, uh, just walking is not going to cut it either. It has to be um, high... Imp- oh, not high impact, um, weight-bearing. Weight so, bearing, yeah. yeah, walking, unfortunately, um, sounds like it's getting a bit of a, a, a bad reputation as far as not being a great form of exercise. But it, it still is. But obviously... I guess it's not giving you the cardio workout that something like cycling is, is it? Need to value add a bit with these other... Mm. Perhaps, um, in fairness to walking, then it's 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 only in relation to these astounding results for cycling. Yes. Um, it's still much much better than um, sitting you know, in the car. Just sitting in the car. Yes, and, and, yeah, and exactly. Public transport. Yep. yep. Um, so now we've got this piece of uh, information that's you know unambiguously pointing to the benefits of of cycling, but. Clearly, that's not going to immediately get people on their bike tomorrow no. morning or, you know, for ride-to-work day even as a one-off. No. Um, as, a, as, a, as somebody who enjoys it and does it just because I enjoy it, it then becomes hard for me to kind of hypothesise why people don't do it. Of you course. Know, you know, when you enjoy something, you go, why, why doesn't, doesn't everybody right? enjoy What's wrong this? with you? Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, I'm not a cyclist. Uh, why don't I? But a lot of yeah. it would be habit, wouldn't it? I mean, you have a habit of getting to work whichever way you get to work. Yeah. And then changing that habit, like changing any habit is difficult. Yeah, I mean, the idea of having to ride to work and then then needing to either have a shower or... Change your you top know, or something. It, just the, the attire I wear to work, uh, It just it, it's just all too complicated for me. Well, it's not complicated, you know what I mean? It's just no, but it's the idea, extra, as you said. It's, that extra thing I have to yeah. think about that, you know, just means it adds another yeah. 15, 20 minutes to my preparation before I your start seeing a passion. Yeah. 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 I'm de- uh, yeah, I'm definitely lucky that I've got a workplace, you know, a university where where we've got amazing facilities yeah. for cyclists, you know, yeah. showers and change mm. rooms and repair kits and the whole shebang. Mm, yeah. So there's obviously a lot of workplaces where that's just not, not the case. Correct. And, of course, a huge thing I think in Melbourne particularly is the tram tracks. The tram tracks are just a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone, every cyclist I know, myself included, has, has, has had an issue with the tram tracks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we some areas of Melbourne are very well positioned for bike access with really excellent bike paths but some places are shocking um so i think that's probably a big factor for a lot of people so then that ultimately starts pointing to really interesting things in my mind anyway um that health as a motivator is never enough right there there are there are things that we as the panel beater are you a sociologist i might But it depends on how you frame health, doesn't it? I mean, if you say to a guy, um, if you don't stop smoking, for example, this is the line I always use because I'm trying to get people to stop smoking, as everyone does. If you don't stop smoking, you're going to lose your erections. Great one. <laughs> Great one. I reckon that's a good one for diabetes too. Yeah. 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 If you don't yeah. get your diabetes under control, you're not going to have an erection anymore. You can yeah. have no feet and no people erection. People care about that. And then people start talking about, but if you're on the saddle a lot, doesn't that have some kind yeah, of... Yeah, no, I don't want to raise that. <laughs> <laughs> We're just about out of time, but panel bleeder, that's a great topic and I'm really glad that I rode my bike here today because now I feel really good about myself. Um, thanks so much for listening to Radiotherapy this morning. We've had panel beater, Dr Capri, our special guest, Dr Vincent Cornelis, talking about sexual health and myself. Dr. Trainer Wheels. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.